This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. For the second time, gracing this podcast with her presence is Jody Lynn Knight. So exciting. So exciting. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. So I have to say in my Stormtrooper mug, in honor, honor of Jody Lynn Nye, because last time she did this, I actually just have hot cocoa. There's no alcohol in it. It is just hot cocoa. And I was like, Jody, if it's good enough for Jody, it's going to be good enough for me. That's how that's going to work. JM, what are you drinking? I am drinking tea in my Moon and Stars mug, but it's caramel corn. So it tastes like caramel popcorn black tea. It's so good. That sounds brilliant. That sounds really tasty. That sounds weird. That doesn't sound weird. It's weird, but, but also really good. I believe you. I actually used a cocoa ball. Is that what they call them for my... Where you get to those are okay. yeah you put the ball in or it, something yeah those those are beautiful yeah they're beautiful and it's yummy and there were marshmallows I was very excited it was like a gift mm-hmm. okay Jody what are you drinking today let's all be surprised. I am drinking hot cocoa it's it's my uh, drink of choice always I have it for breakfast every morning and because I decided when I became a grown up I could have whatever I wanted for breakfast so I I like hot cocoa. I love that idea. I love that idea. I maybe bought myself a box of Fruity Pebbles and ate it in two days the other day because hey. I was like, I haven't had Fruity Pebbles. <clears throat> I'm going to eat an entire box. My boyfriend is like, what are you doing? And no, I'm seriously, like, you've got to do it sometime. Putting it under my arm, nothing. <laughs> nothing, nothing. Cookie Crisp is my. Cookie Crisp, that's yours? Okay. So Jody, what is new and exciting with you? Since last we spoke. Oh my gosh. Well, moving backwards through time, my husband has COVID at the moment. I had it two weeks ago. We were in Europe. Uh, Bill occasionally speaks on cruise ships and we were on a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. And when you come back into the United States, they make you test before you enter to make sure you're negative. And the people who were in front of us got pulled out of line because one of their number tested positive. We were all masked, but it does not seem to have helped. I got sick. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, the guilty party. Look at that. Well, maybe, maybe at least I tested negative and I could get home. They had to quarantine in Italy for uh, five to 10 days. Yeah. No, unlucky them. They're very serious about that. I had a coworker who got stuck in Austria or something like that. Like he was flying and they didn't test him on the airport he left from, but where he landed before he got on the next plane, they tested. And then we had to do a whole maneuver to get him moved to another country because he was like, it is here. I forget where he was. I don't want to say Austria and anybody listening from Austria, but it was like, he got stuck somewhere and then we had to get him moved to another somewhere. And he was there for two weeks until he tested negative and they tested him every single day. Mm-hmm. Your nose hurts after a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're on the mend. Yeah. And I hope I hope your wonderful husband, who we thoroughly enjoy, although he is an epic taskmaster for this show, is on the mend soon, too. He is. He is. The, but the thing that happened to me probably latest is that I have been named the coordinating judge for the Writers of the Future contest. 
Ooh, I have been reading hundreds of stories and and there goes my tea kettle. Um, some of them have been absolutely brilliant and amazing. Uh, some of them mind-blowingly good. And I'm just, I feel, I feel privileged, but also sad at the same time because the reason I got the job was uh, my dear friend, David Farland, who was the coordinating judge before me passed away in January. Oh, well, that is, uh, congratulations, but not for that reasoning. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. Um, <laughs> that's gonna be interesting. Reading, you know, obviously, you know, we do publishing, so we read people who submit and stuff. But what is it like to read for a contest that that is that well known and that large and that big of a reach? Well, I'm I'm on the move back to my office, so the lights will this change. This is a live action podcast we're having for the first time ever. Live action moving podcast. Ooh, love it. That's right. We have. <laughs> We're, we're having you, a scene change. <laughs> Do you well, use like a rubric uh, or a score sheet? Fortunately, because there are so many stories submitted, yeah. I have a wonderful friend who is helping me out. She uh, is Carrie English, who is a, oh. a former winner of the contest as well. They have three winners per quarter, 12 a year. And she was, she was one of them, I think, uh, six years ago, seven? And she reads through the initial quantity of stories and I get the ones that she thinks are worth passing on. And I review them for several different placements, either honorable mention, silver honorable mention, semi-finalist and finalist. The finalists are voted on by the other judges in the contest who include people like Kevin Anderson, Larry Niven, uh, Rob Sawyer, Greg Benford, my goodness, uh, Catherine Kurtz. So oh. a lot of very notable people that who, whose names you probably have on your own books, bookshelves. And it's, uh, and once a year they have a wonderful grand gala where the 12 winners from the writers and the illustrators both come and they spend a week in Hollywood, honestly on Hollywood Boulevard, getting, uh, pointers on their careers and uh, receiving some really very pretty awards and money and having a an honest to god black tie red carpet gala hey you know as writers i don't think often enough we get red carpet galas for anything that we do so right. you know you're lucky if you get a punch card i like to make fun of um bram stoker's gives out when you're like a runner-up but you don't win you get a punch card and i think it's like after 10 punches they just give you the award just because you've, you've not done it. Because my friend dress, Jeff Strand won this year and he made a joke about turning in his punch card and he had something like, Jeff will kill me when he listens to this, seven or eight punches or something like that on his card. And he was, <laughs> but it says, you know, free Bram Stoker award once filled out or something on oh, it. Oh, that's it's brilliant. Really I love that. I love that. Yeah. No, that's, this, is a, this is a great start for young writers. And the, the stories that they produce are really good. They are, they are ready to move into professional circles at that point. But uh, it's tough competition. There are so many stories submitted every quarter. But every quarter, anybody can submit four times a year, one story per quarter. And some people just keep on sending and sending and sending. And sooner or later, they'll probably place. 
So it's, it's a terrific opportunity for kids to enter the contest is free, unlike many, many writer contests where they ask for a, yeah. a, an enrollment fee of some kind. This is, this is completely covered by the contest. So it's, uh, I think it's great. fantastic because, you know, we, there's so many things that need to change in the publishing world and mm -hmm. having to pay to get published. I, I say that on any time I'm asked to talk anything about being published, I say, if somebody wants money from you to be published, walk away. Like it's not worth it to pay somebody to publish you. Vanity mm -hmm. Press, contest, any of that stuff. Like just go away. It's not worth it if that's the case. Money should always flow to the writer, not away. Mm -hmm. like 1,000% agree. Well, what about you with writing? It's been a couple of years since we had you on. What are what your writing to? Well, uh, a lot of things happened during the pandemic and before. So uh, I'm kind of behind on things. I did publish uh, a nonfiction book for, uh, for rewriting your manuscript. It's called Once More with Feeling. I've written a number of short stories that, uh, but I've been working on a couple of novels for this, the same couple of years and and I feel I am working on them again but I lost my dad during that period uh, I sorry it, for your it's loss. been complicated Bill and I have both had COVID now three times oh my and, goodness three times yeah, yeah we we caught it in March well in February of 2020 just when nobody still nobody knew what was going on yet me too <laughs> And yeah, so did so did she. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So pretty severe case. Then in January of this year, we think we got an Omicron because we only realized in retrospect that we both felt kind of off and cruddy. And remember with COVID, there's a whole host of symptoms. There's like 16 symptoms. And you put your hand in the jar and you draw out a handful, and no two people have the same ones, the same combination. So we weren't even aware that we had had it. We thought we just had colds. We just felt awful. So, you know, trying to just pull life back together again and adding to it the, uh, the contest. But as my mother always says, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So, <laughs> exactly. And ask somebody who likes a challenge. Yeah. Um, I yep. think it's, it's definitely interesting how much COVID has changed our culture because now, when somebody has any of those 16 symptoms, the first thing out of somebody's mouth is, is it COVID? Like, did you test for COVID? Mm -hmm. my, right. my son actually had a, a temperature. I went down to Florida um, and I was down there um, the third week of May or something like that. And it, mm -hmm. I arrived on a Sunday and he was like, yeah, um, he, he didn't say anything Sunday night. Then Monday, I got a text saying that you know, when he, it was a friend of his joking when he comes back to work and I texted him because I was staying at the house with him and he's, I'm like, are you home? He's like, yeah, I got a temperature. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. And he's, I'm like, I didn't say anything because I was like, of course he's going to test like, duh. And then I went out to dinner with friends that night and I'm there, I'm like sitting at dinner and then I'm like, wait, did you test? And he's like, no, why? And I'm like, hey. And he goes and does the test and he sends me a picture and it's positive. And I'm like, that better be a pregnancy test, dude. That's what that better be. <laughs> they look just I'm like a mad scramble yeah. to somebody else's house. Cause I was like, I can't stay there and knock on wood. 
for the amount of close calls like that, that I've had literally exposure and Jen can attest to it where I've been face to face with the Rona, I've not gotten it once. Now I did get the vaccine and I did get the, at least the first booster, but knock on wood, I didn't get it. But all that week I was doing tests every single morning. Cause I'm like, do I have COVID? And you know, the friend's house that I went to, they had had it twice. And I'm like, are you sure you want me to come? Cause I may be bringing round three to you. And they're like, oh. no, it's fine. Luckily they didn't yeah. get it. I, I think Jen, you had it how many times? I had it twice. I got it right before Dragon Con last year. So I couldn't oh, go. No. I was like, no. <sighs> But, Do you have yeah. a lot of allergies, Erica? I read an article today that said that people who have allergies tend to be more resistant to COVID than- I have so don't. many allergies. Pollen is my enemy. And I'm allergic you to are, coconut. You, I'm allergic to latex. I'm allergic to penicillin. Apparently like, I have built up everything, but pollen is my demon that comes in. Well, well, I don't. I have, I have one allergy and that's to, one, uh, to a medication. So I, that makes me more vulnerable than you are. But I saw that, I, I saw that article too. And I, I'm allergic to a lot of things like UV light and <laughs> alcohol. Jen yeah. is a resident vampire, by the way, because she is actually, I've known her long enough that this changed from her being a perfectly fine human being. I was normal. To, and then she suddenly, we used to go out drinking, dancing all the time. Now she's allergic to alcohol of any kind i'm the only person with an EpiPen for liquor yep Ooh. and then she so she developed this over time it wasn't instantaneous it's developed and now she's actually also allergic to sunlight so i, I am allergic the, to sunlight i i break out in blisters so Do you, yeah, I, yeah i get yeah. hives and then it just keep like i have to get out of the light or it just keeps mm -hmm. me worse so, Look, you two have found each other. Right? Two of the rare people on the planet when, allergic. Like when it first happened, I was like, what is happening to me? Like every, you can see every line where, where the sun touched me. And then mm -hmm. over like the next month, I, I went to the hospital, you know, there was like a whole, they tested me. They thought I had lupus, which I don't, because I guess that's one of the signs for an autoimmune. Um, but they were like, yeah, you're just weirdly allergic to UV. Just oh, get boy. your car tinted. <laughs> So yep, I got to the life-giving to tip my windows. So that was awesome. Yep. Oh my goodness. I recommend Kula Bar or Solumbra clothing because they are sunproof. They are very good. Yep. Everywhere. So <laughs> yep. Everywhere. And I'm the one that sits here and I'm like, I can drink and go out in the sun all I want to, like a party, except for when there's pollen out there. That's one thing I've discovered about North Carolina. Florida has pollen, but there are so many trees up here that it like pollen has coated my deck. My deck is coated in pollen. And I discovered this only because when I walked outside, I was like, what am I stepping on? And then Jonathan, my boyfriend came and he was like, I'll blow the deck off. So he goes to blow it and it was like a cloud of pollen. <laughs> and I was like, no, believe me, sure. It was pretty bad. It was a pretty bad experience. Just it's like that here. We're in Georgia now. I, I, oh. don't, I don't know if we were in Georgia when I talked to you first, but I can't remember. I don't remember either, but you're, you're back in Georgia. And we get to actually see you at Dragon Con this year. 
knock on wood we've been invited to speak for some reason they wanted to hear our ridiculousness so we'll see how that goes mm -hmm. that'll be fun invited back mm -hmm. and so, if you are okay. at con carolinas next weekend uh i am going to be there are and you yes i was debating and... driving over there i'm gonna make a note that, oh, that's cool. worthy of driving over so let me Yes, I'm on I'm on programming there and there is a new award being given to people who mentor other writers and persons called the Polaris Award and I will be the first recipient. So that's okay, cool. Yeah. Well deserved. Well deserved. Oh, thank you. I, I am honored. It, it's very nice of them to have thought of me. So it should be interesting. It's the first time I've been in Con Carolinas and everyone I know who has been there said that they love it. So that'll oh, be yeah. Great. No, we were gonna go. I'm, I'm on a mission this year to check out how cons are for getting a writing booth set up, you know, or publication booths and for writers and stuff, because yeah. there are a lot of cons you can go to that can be big cons, but they're not good for authors and stuff that go to those cons. Like, right. It's not good for business. It's not good for meeting readers. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you have to kind of go and go, oh, lay of the land here. I'd rather buy con tickets, do that, than pay hundreds of dollars for a booth and then be like, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, this is not yeah. a reader crowd. No, not at all. So what are the short stories that you've been putting out? Oh, I would I would have to look at my list again, but I uh, had one published in Thrilling Adventure Yarns 2, edited by Bob Greenberger. Oh, very cool. It, it is a follow-on to a story that I wrote for an anthology. Uh, I have this character called Trouble. Her real name is, is Carrie Lynn, and she is brilliant, but mm, she in reality don't get along very well. So her <laughs> long-suffering cowboy boyfriend, this, this takes place in the uh, around the turn of the, the 20th century, so 1890-ish. And uh, she and her, fa her father comes up with inventions, and Carrie Lynn finds an opportunity to mess with them. The first one was about, it was a humorous steampunk old west science fiction adventure wow trouble, trouble wow. in an hour blast time, time travel mm -hmm. and the second one is uh, more or less straightforward steampunk humorous science fiction western oh my gosh, <laughs> trouble so on the rails wow wow so, that's fun oh it was it was a lot of fun and let me see i, I i'll have to check my list here because Goodness knows, my brain goes blank when somebody says, well, you know, what have you been working on? Oh, my God. Like, I can remember. You're like, what haven't I been working on? What happened? Well, I, I guess that's that's probably a, a true thing. So uh, what have I got on the list here? Let's see. I, I'm in uh, Chicks in Tank Tops, which is edited by Jason Cordova, which I think is coming out imminently. The Four Question Marks of the Apocalypse, and uh, edited by Keith DeCandido, and that will be a lot of fun because he said, name, name your four horsemen, and somebody's doing dinner ladies, and someone else is doing lawyers, and I naturally am doing cats. <laughs> so it's called a pocket lips. I love it. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, what else have I got here? Go back to the stories. Uh, Lost Cities of Earth, edited by Jeff Sturgeon, uh, is I think is finally out. Uh, 
And we were to choose a city of earth naturally. And I chose Chicago because I am a native Chicagoan. I have uh, three stories in writers of the future anthologies starting with edit, uh, issue volume 34. And I had a lot of fun with that because I, they, they occasionally ask judges to submit a story or uh, let them reprint one, but I have given them original stories based on the cover art for that particular book. And they were not used to that because with the writers of the future, when they publish the anthology, the 12 short story winners stories are illustrated by the illustrator winners. And then the cover is done by one of the illustrator judges. So in this case, they had this beautiful piece with a wizard standing on a mountainside with his arms outstretched, inviting the silver dragon to land. And I said, oh, I can do that. I can write a story to go with that. I was going to say, so hands down, you can write a story that goes with the dragon and all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was funny, too. So I had a lot of fun with that. And uh, let's see. A few for online um, for the Bain Books website, uh, my, my Lord Thomas Canago stories. I've got a few of those. What I was very fond of that came all the way back in uh, early 2020 was for a book called Predators in Petticoats. And it's a new take on shapeshifters, or at least I think so, called Dominance. Ooh. Uh, so I've had I've had some I've had a lot of fun with these. The uh, the opportunities have been wonderful and I'm very proud to have been able to do that. So I'm I'm working on several right now, including a few things that I've never tried before, but I'm going to hold back until I hear from the editors and see if they like my proposals. I like that idea. I like that idea. Mm -hmm. We have to take a quick break. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Jody. Our sponsor today on Drinking with Authors is Skunk Brothers Spirits. Skunk Brothers Spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits. Their name was inspired by their pops, who was nicknamed Skunk. Skunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunk. We're back to this epic storytelling. So what are the books you're working on then? The two that, you know, got sidelined and then now are back into play. They, what are those they two? Get, they did get sidelined. I'm, I'm working on a 1632 book with Eric Flint for his, uh, his long writing series. That's kind of time travel, uh, very interesting. Uh, what if 
If you've never read these books, they're terrific. They're so it starts with the book called 1632 by Eric Flint. What if a town in West Virginia got swept up and dropped into the middle of 17th century Thuringia during the Hundred Years' War? And oh, wow. what is going to happen when a whole bunch of Americans land in primeval Germany? Oh my goodness. In the goodness. midst of a very, very active piece of history. Yeah. It's a great series. And it's he has did he Charles has Gannon write one of a lot of people in that series? Yes, he has written some of those too. Yes. yes. He was the one that brought them up to me. I was he's been on the podcast a couple of times and he brought them up and he wrote when they sound just absolutely fascinating. They are. They are amazing. They have great characters. Eric, Eric loves a little bit of romance in his stories as well. And he is, uh, you, you can tell a lot about the way Eric thinks too, the way the stories are structured, that the little guy, he wants that to come forward, to come out on top. He wants people to be able to cooperate with each other. And in a, in a way, that's also the American way of, instead of just the nobles benefiting, the little guy benefits too. So it, I, I agree with, with his uh, philosophy on that and they're, they're good stories as well. He's had a lot of people, including Chuck Gannon and David Weber, other people who've written stories for him. And because Eric also publishes the Grantville Gazette, which is anthologies of short stories, he's given dozens and dozens of young writers their first professional publication. So he's, uh, he's the kind of guy who wants, he's got a big tent. He wants to include people. I think and, that's amazing. And a lot of the people I notice in the circle around you and when I talk to other authors that are, you know, Keith, things like that, there's so much give back that I absolutely love hearing about. Like, you know, to the community at large because people do need help. They don't know where to go. They don't necessarily know where to start and they don't know how to do things. And they're, you know, as much as you can have school, it's kind of interesting to me having done HR for a number of years, like a lot of people go to business, get a business degree and they're not prepared to go to work in business. They're just not, they've done all these courses and like they end up as data entry because they, you're, you're not given the actual tools you need and mentor to succeed in a business type environment. And that's true with writing. Like you can do a ton of classes and creative writing. And I mean this with all the love in the world, Jen, I do. Is that, but the actual nuts and bolts of getting a story published and into a publication or to a publisher and stuff like that, that is not necessarily included in the content of what you're learning when you get a creative writing degree, for instance. You may oh, be absolutely. a great absolutely. writer, but as far as getting that great <laughs> writing published, and by the time, you know, you take a class on publishing, a lot of the, it may be up to date then, but then you, by the time you graduate, it's already outdated. Like any information they gave you about trends or marketing or any of that, it's all changing. Mm -hmm. So you need a mentor to, to help you. <laughs> I taught at Columbia College, Chicago one year and the uh, fantasy writers workshop, fantasy. And before that, I was a cinema major at USC you know, going, going back even way farther. And the trouble is that nobody, when you graduate, is going to give you a job in film and nobody's going to give you a publishing contract. You have tools. You have the idea of what to look at that might make a good story or might make a good script, or you have now held a camera, you have now edited film. 
None of that is going to work for a publishing house or a movie studio. Nothing succeeds like practical knowledge. In fact, one of my students, he was one of my A students, you can guess this, said to me during our, our student teacher conference, I had to have one with each of, each of my students. He said, I realize now that I'm getting a college degree in what is essentially a hobby. So I'm going to stay on afterwards and get my teaching certificate because otherwise I'm not going to be able to make any money on what I actually am doing and I'll write while I'm teaching. And I said, that sounds like a very practical approach because he was a, quite a good writer, but it takes more than a short story contract or two or six to make a living. No, it's true. And it's true even more so now in the publishing world than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Getting published does not mean, and I, I think this is really interesting. I refer back to it a lot. Um, I want to say it was three years ago, there was that Twitter movement, what publishing paid me, like the hashtag what publishing paid me that was on Twitter, right? And a lot of, and to their credit, and I give them a lot of credit, a lot of New York Times bestsellers, a lot of people who had the clout that said, I'm, I'm a very well-published author, you know, whatever titles you want to put to it, went out and said, this is how much this paid me to do this gig, right? And mm -hmm. it shows you that you have to do something a lot. Like I talk about working actors too. If you did, if you did film, there's this cream of the crust that makes you know, $18 million paychecks in a movie. And then there's this huge grouping of working actors that constantly have to do movies or TV shows or whatever, voiceover work, read, you know, audio books, stuff like that to constantly, because they need a paycheck. It's like us. They need to actually have jobs to constantly have a paycheck. They mm -hmm. don't just do one season of a show on CBS and they're set for life. That's not how mm -hmm. it works. My late brother-in-law was one of the great cadre of actor waiters in, in New York. He's, by the <laughs> way, a, a terrific waiter. He, he put lots of his acting talent into it. He was also a musician, so he could play accompaniments. He could play club gigs, a pianist. But he was not making it as just an actor. He was waiting tables. He was, he was doing gigs where he could. And almost every writer I know has some secondary form of income of some kind. Almost no authors are independently wealthy or started off that way. The, the conventional wisdom is that when Larry Niven was 18 years old, his father, there, there's oil money in the family, gave him a million dollars and said, don't lose it. But beyond that, everyone else has had to have a job of their own, a sideline, uh, teaches, has a spouse who has a job. There is, they have made investments and are able to live off that. But almost every writer out there has some secondary form of income or some other support. They live with their parents. They live in the basement. They are a caretaker for someone. Maybe they're professional babysitters. Everybody has a different way of bringing in funds because the income from writing is so irregular that you have to be a good saver. You have to know how to take care of your money. And you know that you have to put aside a third of your income for taxes. So yes. I, I always tell people who say, oh yeah, I'm gonna quit and write books. And I say, do you have three years worth of expenses? It used to be conventional wisdom with six months of expenses, not anymore. You could not possibly survive on it. No, totally three years. It's interesting because when Jeff Strand, I don't know if you've ever met Jeff Strand, he's a horror author, but he was talking about that. And he 
got to turn into a full-time writer, but it was after he published 40 books, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the other thing is like, you can be like, and he, you know, was very nice to his day job when he quit and left it with warm and fuzzies with the idea that if I have to, you know, he had the one letter written of the, I'm going to burn this house down kind of thing. And then the, hi, thank you for everything you do letter and handed that one in because if he had to go back because it didn't work out, but he had a number of books under his belt. And that's the other thing I think a lot of authors don't necessarily think with is the volume of work you have to produce to to get to the part where you're making a living and I use quotations for anybody not watching this on YouTube <laughs> um you know make a living doing writing you have to adjust your lifestyle to know that you're not necessarily going to be the next JK Rowling's or whatever you may be a working author look I want to coin that term working author where you're where you're, where you're writing, but you're having to write a lot and having to do a lot of gigs to maintain a lifestyle, right? But you're not going to be driving around like the top of the line, brand new car all the time and stuff. That's not, that's not your writer's life. You know? No, no yeah. it isn't. And for, for some reason, people see the movies, people see the television shows, people see the books in print, the, the, paper books and they think that there's a lot of glamour in it but it's a job just like any other you have to take it seriously and i have given the talk to so many people about if you don't take your career seriously no one else will either you have to make it clear to your children that this is your writing time and stick to it and one of the things you never, never say to your three-year-old is do not bother mommy unless the house is on fire because they will make it so. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so true. Exactly. <laughs> so your author help book, I, I have to ask, and I'm surprised Jen hasn't already because um, it is, because is that from Buffy? Once What's more, more with really? feeling? Well, it's a common phrase, but they use it. That yeah. phrase has been around a very, very long time. Yeah. But that's but that's also where my mind went, Erica. That's the, the most recent pop culture reference for it. Yes. That my I was like, oh, the Buffy musical. But which okay. I thought was very charming, but it has the phrase has been around a great deal longer than Buffy. Mm -hmm. So yes. I didn't know if it inspired one of my book titles was inspired by Anchorman. I just wasn't sure it was inspired by that. Um I think that's brilliant. And then the other thing, I got to talk to you a little bit about this, but I know Jen kind of geeked out. Go ahead and ask about the Xanth book. I yeah. So you you wrote the guidebook for Pier, with Piers Anthony, the the Xanth book. So how can you tell us about it? <laughs> I well, love Piers Anthony. He's he's a terrific writer. He's a very nice man. I I like him tremendously. This came about because my husband, who had, uh, he, has, he has done many of these things. He has, many people would call him a book packager, but uh, I think it was Avon Books called him a book facilitator because they had been burned by a, a different book packager. He had come up with doing guidebooks to known worlds. So he did the Guide to Castle Amber with beautiful illustrations by Todd Cameron Hamilton, who was a tremendously great artist. And at the same time, he was negotiating with Anne McCaffrey and Delray Books to do the Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern. Pern, yeah. 
but it has to be because these are illustrated guides, something that has a lot of potential for illustrations. Mm -hmm. And Xanth was an obvious choice. So again, uh, we went to Todd, got him signed up and talked to Piers about it. And Piers thought that it was a great idea. Naturally, it's tremendously outdated by now because he has added at least two more trilogies of nine books each to his, uh, his yes. saga. But we went to his home in Florida and interviewed him for several days, asked him many questions. I love a good pun and I, I can sling him with the best of them. He is a, a noted master of the terrible bad joke and I love that. So it was a privilege to be able to work with him. We got along very well, I think. And the, the book is beautifully illustrated. We have uh, some of the illustrations around the house, but you, you can see most of them in, in the book. And we had so much fun working on that. We got to meet the nightmare. Piers uh, had this 26 year old mare who lived with him and the, the pony that kept her company. So there, there were a lot of things that were very interesting. The, 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 the forest in which Bink lives is pretty much the tree farm on which Piers lives now. So. Wow. A, retire, a retired tree farm, great place to live because you are near nothing else. So he has the quiet he needs to work. Oh, that is, well, so we reached out and talked to Pierce. I think I mentioned this on your, and I talked to him and said, <laughs> would you like to do the podcast? And he said he would love to, but then COVID hit. And I was just even telling um, Jen before we got on here I was like I am not going to be responsible for bringing COVID to Pierce Anthony like things on my list that I'm not going to be responsible for doing because you yeah, can't please. guarantee when you bring people to do a production even if it's just recording in just a couple of us that something won't happen and I'm like I can't be responsible for that at all he is an older gentleman do not make him sick yeah. no exactly I was he's like I'd love to I can't use a computer very well, so I want you to come in person. And I'm like, mm, I want to, because I actually have on my bookshelf that visual guide to Xanth, because The Veil of the Bowl was one of the first books that got me into reading a lot of fantasy. It was it was just, I love those books. They're some of my mm -hmm. favorites. Oh, I, I enjoyed them so much. My first contact with him really was because of the Choose Your Own Adventure books that I wrote that were set in his world, the, the Crossroads books one of the first series that Bill came up with. And when Piers agreed that Xanth could be one of the books that, one of the series that we wrote in, I said, me, 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 me. And uh, working with him was, was a pleasure. I love the idea of choose. How was that to write? I actually, we were talking about doing adult choose your own adventure books. Well, that's what these were. Were they adult and not like young adult or were they? No, they were written for adults. They were smart, adults. Smart kids could read them, but yeah, I I read all of those when I mean I I was probably in high school, but I read they were they were grown up. I always know like you you find you figure out very quickly like page eighty eight means death, so don't go there. Because the <laughs> Bill did two series. One of them was Crossroads, which were individual adventures. So uh, Seven No Trump, which was set in in. Uh, Zelazny's Amber, and by the way, that was another <laughs> was so one, of the, one of the uh, things that Bill did a guide to. And Combat Command, which was a series for Ace books that were choose your own adventures with 
troops, either ground troops or spaceships, um, fleets. And Robert Heinlein allowed us to do one uh, in his world and so on. There were, there were a number of really cool things that came out of that series. That and is, those were definitely not for kids. That is, I just have to say, every time I talk to you, I get more and more jealous of your life. I'm just, I literally am like, this is like so amazing to have these stories and these interactions with these fantastic creatives. It's just, it's, it's, I'm jealous. That's what it is. <laughs> there is one I, I have been very jealousy. lucky. I have been very lucky. I, I have no doubt about that. It's amazing. I just, the, like, I love choose your own adventure stories, partly because I grew up reading your, your series. Mm -hmm. um, I love, and myth inspirations, those are the other ones. Um, but it's funny because I always think they're great. And then Neil Patrick Harris did his biography, his autobiography is a choose your own adventure. And I'm a crazy person. Oh, and wow. I read it all the way through instead of following. And in the middle of the book, he has a page and he's like, why are you here? Are you reading this book straight through you maniac? Da, 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 da. So I always thought that was great. And then when I'm teaching and I talk about writing and, you know, mostly we focus this college, we, we talk about writing essays. But every now and again, we'll talk about writing fiction and I bring up choose your own adventure and my students have no idea what that is there. Occasionally, some of them will be like, oh, you mean like on Netflix where you get to pick what Bear Grylls does next like that, like there are books like that. Yeah. So figure 20 year olds today, the ones that I, I they weren't even born. Yet. They they were not even born yet when choose your own adventures were a thing because a thing, crossroads like and combat command books came out in 87 and 88. Yeah, so. And then Nintendo came along and that was the end of that. Yeah, we need to bring back, I'm just saying, we need to bring back the Choose Your Own Adventures. Mm -hmm. We need to we bring them, do them back. electronically now, we can make them longer. The trouble with the books that we had was we could only make them so long. We could only have so many decisions on the decision, decision tree. Mm -hmm. You could do a lot more than that now. If I was going to say, I think we should make Choose Your Own Adventure books that are like that big that go through a whole thing. I, I'm about bringing this back. Maybe we'll have to talk project because I think we can bring back the Choose Your Own Adventure and especially in several different genres with the way genres are now. I mean, you talked about your time travel, like you, you had like five different genres with your short story. You can do something like that with Choose Your Own Adventure. I would also love Choose Your Own Adventure horror stories. I think that would be they Epic. they had things like that honestly there there were there were but they were mostly very soft aimed at kids because mm -hmm. you could only go so far in any of these novels if it has illustrations if it has a, a an illustrative cover you're going to attract young people and how far do you want to go on that well we will not put illustrative covers and i'm willing to go quite far <laughs> on these so if, if interested, I am willing to throw this in the hat again, because I think that would be a lot of fun. I miss them. I love them. You would, you would get adult readers with nostalgia. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think if you did it the right way and with the right stories, you would get younger readers. They're just not, something's just not reintroduced. It's so funny when I see younger people come up and talk about things and I'm like, yeah, so we had that. <laughs> Nothing ever happened about before in they... 20 years, but we had it. So nothing no. ever happened before they were born. You know that. Yeah, yeah. no, it's it's true. One of my kids has my blockbuster card and thinks it's the greatest thing in the world that they found my blockbuster card. And I was like, that okay, that I didn't save that because it was blockbuster. It happened to be in a box of stuff. 
And they were like, look what I found above their head. And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. That you want, was you a- want to go farther back? Ask him if he knows what an e-ticket is. <laughs> they found my, okay. They found two other things. They found my pager at one point in time. Oh and my they were God. Like, is this like a tiny cell phone? Like they're trying to figure it when it slid out of its case. They were like, and I'm like, what no, it's it? a pager. And I'm, they're like, what, it, what does it do? And I'm like, it's, it's like a beeper. And they're like, okay, does it just beep? And I'm like, and then I had to explain it. And I was like trying to explain it. And they were like, well, how did you know who was calling? And I'm like, cause you remembered phone numbers. Like, that's how that works. And there were public pay phones, which are not a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they found a record, like a vinyl record. Yep. And this is before Stranger Things and all these kind of things came out that had records in them. And they were like, what is this? And I'm like, it's kind of like what a CD was before it was a tape. And they're like, a tape? Tape? And then I had to go find the tapes and pull the tapes out. And they're like, what do you do with that? And I'm like, this is, uh, this is just, uh, whatever. Get out, get out of the house completely. Get off my lawn. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's funny watching older shows like Buffy. Uh, everything in that show would be solved with a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something I always wonder when you're writing. How much technology do you put into your story based on? I, like, how oh God, made? I have made that mistake so often of making something that I thought could not be superseded, and discovering, oh yes, it can. Oh yes, it will. You have to be very vague on the structure of, of things, unless your story is about that discovery. Do you think, that, uh, you know, I've talked to authors who intentionally write after cert, uh, before certain times in the past, before, or, you know, everybody looks at Blade Runner now and goes, I wish, um, you know, because of what that was in the future. But do you ever intentionally write in the past where like the idea of a cell phone would you know, like psh, that's not even a thing moving on from there oh sure the series that i picked one of the series i picked up from robert Aspern, the dragon series it takes place in 2003 so at least they're up to 2003 so there are still blockbusters and there are record stores and other things that have have gone by the wayside because of downloads and just, I had a tremendous argument with the line editor from the publishing house because they kept saying, but these things exist and, and driving through the mountains, of course you still have cell phone coverage. I said, not in 2003, but you didn't say it was 2003. It's pre-Katrina, <laughs> it's, it's pre a lot of things. There was no cell phone coverage everywhere. You could look at the maps and there were huge gaps in between. Yeah. And this, I, I could not get through to this person. I finally had to go to the editor and say, I, I can't work with this person. She refuses to put her mind back far enough in the past. Was she, was she too young? Was she like five in 2003? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> was that part of the problem? The trouble with writing anything historical or anything with specialized knowledge, uh, Bill talked, he had, a, he had a copy editor who said, about one of his military books. Well, isn't a major higher than a colonel? Why was this person working on this book? Yeah. 
you can Google that if you don't know. Like, apparently <laughs> it's not, not something that you ask if you're not sure. Well, yes, and, and everything should be queried. Yeah. So you have you have lots of little questions in, in the margin. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. And track changes is the thing that young writers are familiar with, but they don't get it about post-it notes and red pens and other things. Yes, no, exactly. Or paper when things were on paper. Yeah, That's okay. Jen teaches English. They don't get it about track changes and mm -hmm. all kinds of things it, that it it blows my mind. Like you would assume they're the they're the digital eight, you know, like generation. They know how to use a computer. No, they don't. They just keep documents open because they don't know how to save them. Um, so if like for we use Canvas is our school program. So you upload it to Canvas, but if it doesn't save or something goes wrong, I'm like, that's fine, just send it to me again. They're like, oh, I didn't save it. You know, the only way I keep things is because I have 172 tabs open on my screen. <laughs> What are you doing? Uh, an, an old friend of mine is teaching computer science at a junior college in Illinois. And she had to explain to them that if you don't save it, it does not exist anymore when you turn off your computer. Mm -hmm. And she said, I don't know how to tell them about this. I said, do you have a whiteboard in your office? And she said, yes. I said, okay, tell them to write something on the whiteboard, then erase it and say, where is that, where is that information now? Mm -hmm. Unless you photographed it. It's, Gone. It's gone. Right. Yeah. You know, our computer class is the number one failed class I, at my college. What? <laughs> our intro to computers is the number one. CGS 1000 is the number one failed class. It's got to be there. Kids, kids, we have now, we are, we are digital immigrants. The kids who are mm -hmm. being born today are digital natives. They have never lived in a life that did not have complicated computers. They have never heard the modem sound. Mm. Oh, the, the wonderful modem sound. That's right. But I, I almost feel like it's similar to, like I teach writing. And one of the things when I was going to school, everyone just assumed you knew how to write. They didn't teach you how. Like when in any of my classes, they weren't like, this is a subject. This is a verb. This is a thing called a direct object. Like they didn't do that when I was in school in the 90s because, they, you know, like every 20 years we swing back and forth in the 70s, they were like, you must recite it, you know, tell us the thing. And then by the time you got to the 90s, people were like, no, we're not going to do that. People just know, you just absorb it. So then I get them in college and now they're like, I don't know how to, I, I can't explain to you what's wrong with your sentence because you don't know how a sentence is supposed to work. Like you don't have the vocabulary. You don't understand the terminology. It's like trying to explain to someone how to fix their car. Who doesn't know what it's like well the little silver piece needs to attach to the to the rubber gasket and they need you know like so you don't have that framework and i don't think we teach it and i think the computers are in the same category we just assume you know how to use it and they know mm -hmm. how to use a phone but like no, i was gonna say this is the technology they know how to use yeah this and then is they'll the technology try to, they'll try they to don't know how to use it. a computer they know this and i know that it work too because working with technology because we're a SaaS company that I'm working at for two more days, but um, you know, it amazes me the people that don't know simple things about mm -hmm. like emails and stuff like that, where you go, how do you not know how to do an email? But that's going by the wayside because everybody does text messages or voice to chat and stuff like that. And they don't know how to use a computer. They also don't teach typing anymore, whether I don't care whether it's a computer or not a computer, they don't teach you how to use a keyboard and so they assume yeah oh my don't get me started about that in cursive because i made my kids learn how to write 
because I was like, and I taught them how to read a map, an actual map, not a Google map, a map. Cause I'm like, you could get lost. I taught them about bus systems. I'm like, cause if technology fails for whatever reason, you're going to have a lot of people that are stuck in places and don't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, that writing, like you're judging these, these stories that people are writing now has, has the writing shifted? Do you think because of the way that people are writing now, like has the, the technology affected the, the quality of writing or the, the feel of it? One of the things that happened when people were able to get away from paper was the stories got longer and books got longer. So now you have a massive doorstops instead of what used to be a perfectly acceptable novel, which was 60 to 80,000 words. Now they're 120, 150, 200,000. You, you have this, this sort of logoria, this, this outpouring of words that you didn't have before because you were constrained by the amount of paper and the number of times that you had to retype your manuscript all the way from scratch. Okay. So what actually what we're seeing with the contest is a much higher quality of story over time because one of the things Writers of the Future does is to post online workshops for free to tell people how uh, how good stories are, are made, what is necessary to a good story, what's necessary about characterization and world building and things like that. I just read one where this person did not know about homonyms. So there were quite a number of wrong homonyms, but the story itself was pretty good. It was very good, I, better than I would have expected. And some of them have been really, really good. You, you, like anything else, you, you walk into a, an echo chamber of people who are readers and creative, therefore they want to write as well. These are the ones who are reading. These are the ones who are attempting to write and practice their craft. Okay. And they're looking for ways to make that, that craft better. And every time a, one of the anthologies comes out, people read those and say to themselves, this is what good writing looks like. These are really good stories. I need to rise to this level. So the stories have been getting better and better and better over the years. Now people, some people are incredibly creative. They play with things. I talked to a fellow who had written his entire novel, excuse me, his entire short story in sentences of five words only. And every paragraph was a multiple of five sentences. And mind you, the period was not necessarily the end of the thought in the, in the sentence. So you had to get past the fact that there was punctuation there to enjoy it. But still, it was a good story. Just playing with the rules. He was playing with the rules because he was interested in experimenting with it. And he had a good enough command of language to be able to do that. And there are some people who have submitted to the, to the contest who are just that good. And they're just ready to move on, to move up. Mm -hmm. Because of the delay, because of the pandemic, the winners from 2020 and 2021 attended last year's uh, celebration this April. <laughs> okay. So uh, there, there were, oh my gosh, no, it was October. October, 
there were two years worth of people in, in this uh, gala. So some of them having won the contest were now no longer constrained as amateurs. And some of them are have publishing contracts for books or for other short stories because they're that good. Oh, wow, that's very cool. It is, it is. Yeah. No, that's very awesome. Okay, we have to wrap this part, although I feel like we could just talk for days. I mean, I honestly feel that every time I get the opportunity to speak with you, I could talk to you for days. Okay, so shameless self-promotion time, what would you like to promote right now? I am very pleased to say that a, a collection of cat stories by me called Cats Triumphant is about to be re-released, but this time under the aegis of Prince of Cats, uh, books, and it has an adorable cover that uh, is so much better than the previous one. And it will be available in both paper versions and Kindle versions or ebook, all, all of the versions. So I'm very happy that this will finally be available. Uh, you can find me occasionally on Facebook, uh, occasionally on my website, almost never on Twitter but come on, see me at conventions. I've, I've posted the list of cons I'm going to be at this year. I teach the two-day writers workshop at Dragon Con every year, Labor Day weekend every, every year. This will be year 12, I believe. And there's still some spaces left in my class. So come and sign up and join, join the, the fun. Okay, now we have to talk at the con. You need to remember that, Jen, as you just rubbed your hands together. I need you to remember that we're obligated to do things. So I know I have to do things. Okay. Yes. As much as jumping into this class sounds amazing. And we'd love to, but they're gonna go, hey, you're sort of speaking now. Can you go show up at your panel? Gotta do things. Yes, things and stuff. But I think it's an amazing opportunity. You are such an amazing guest, Jody. I love oh, having you on this podcast. You're so much fun. Thank you oh, so thank much you. for being I, here. I'd love to come on with you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm just going to keep asking every time I see even like, oh, look, she's got a short story out. She should be back on the podcast. <laughs> just keep doing that. So this has been Drinking With Authors. I have been your host, Erica Lance. Our sponsor is Skunk Brothers Spirits. I forgot to mention them at the beginning because I'm drinking hot chocolate. So good count today. But the coupon code is DWA10. You can check them out. My co-host today has been the amazing JM Cat and our ghost ghost. Our ghost has been, our guest, I'm fine. It really was just hot chocolate, I promise. Our guest has been Jody Lynn Nye. It's amazing, and we'll see you guys next time.